This episode is dedicated to Ryan Haddon, Emi Fung, Nathan, and Lady Farrow, for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters, and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. This is Sam. This is Gerald Horn. And this is Southpaw. Today on Southpaw, I am very honored to have historian Goat, professor of African-American studies and the author of many, many books, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. I wanted to have you on to discuss your new book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing, because this is exactly what this show is about, the intersection of racism, capitalism, and combat sports. Professor Horn, is this your first book related to sports? Yes, it is. Before I chose this topic, I was looking to do a sports book because since I was a tyke, I have been interested in sports. And I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, where the St. Louis Cardinals are icons. And I started following the St. Louis Cardinals from an early age, even before I learned how to read. And I thought I would do a book on baseball, but I couldn't quite get a handle on it. And I was able to get a handle on the boxing topic. I know you wrote previously on jazz and movies. So is there a theme going on here? Well, sure. I mean, I mean I've written on a number of topics, but those popular culture topics, uh, music, film, boxing, there's a connective thread for any who choose to peruse those works. And the connective thread is organized crime, uh, which plays a preeminent role in this society in general, and in those three areas specifically. And another theme, at least of the music and 
boxing books is the question of racism, uh, not least because black Americans have played a preeminent role with regard to sports and music. And even with regard to the film book, uh, there is a connective thread, at least with the boxing book, because both of those books engage the question of anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish fervor, and that was particularly prevalent and prominent in Hollywood, and still is to a greater or lesser degree. And certainly uh, it was a factor with regard to the early history of boxing, because as you probably know, in the first few decades of the 20th century, a number of the premier boxers happened to be Jewish Americans. So there are connective tissues that unite all of these works. So touching on that, how can sports help us analyze our past and present? Well, I think that sports, for one, (laughs) they generate a lot of capital. They generate a lot of profit and money. And in a capitalist society like the United States of America, it's difficult to understand the society without following the money. And sports also is an area, at least certain areas of sports, uh, they constitute an area where Black Americans have been dominant to a certain degree. And that is not necessarily typical of many areas of capitalism, to put it mildly. And I think that there are many factors that help to explain that phenomenon, the uniqueness of that phenomenon. One is that sports are oftentimes based upon objective criteria. Uh, That is to say, if you're going to be drafted into professional football, U.S. football, that is, where 70% of the performers are black American, well, you can either run a 40-yard dash in 4.3 seconds or you can't. You can either lift uh, a certain weight or you can't to display your strength. With regard to basketball, you can either leap high and touch the top of the backboard, or you can't. And these are all objective criteria, uh, as opposed to subjective criteria, staying on sports, where if you're going to be hired as an assistant coach, well, can you motivate athletes? Well, how, how do you measure that? I mean, How do you have an objective criterion to measure that? And once you move from the objective to the subjective, you're opening the door for discrimination. And I think that's one of the reasons why black Americans have been attracted to sports, because oftentimes excellence or even being hired is based upon objective criteria. And there's less room for discrimination, which is not to say discrimination is absent, but there's less room for it. And I think with regard to uh, persons of color, or to use that phrase, that generally uh, that rule of thumb applies across the board. I think that's why 
of many uh, immigrant communities, particularly from uh, south of the border and from across the Pacific, were attracted to science and math because oftentimes excellence is based upon objective criteria. Now, of course, once again, in those areas too, that's not to say that racism is absent, but it's, 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 it's easier to circumvent uh, in those areas as opposed to whether or not you're going to be hired as a vice president. <laughs> and what are the criteria for that? Uh, oftentimes it's rather murky. Oftentimes it's subjective. And then that opens the door to discrimination. Hmm. So it's not that sports isn't corrupt. It's just that the rest of America and capitalism is more corrupt. Well, that's one, one <laughs> way to put it. I mean, I mean, <laughs> boxing is certainly corrupt. I yeah. mean, uh, I, I, at one point in the book, I quote someone saying that if it wasn't for lack of headroom, they should hold matches in sewers. Mm. This, this is the kind of atmosphere that has attached itself to sports uh, over the decades, particularly to boxing. And of course, once again, this is not unique to sports, as your uh, perceptive question tended to suggest. Uh, this is endemic to capitalism. I mean, look at all the corruption uh, that uh, flows from capitalism. I mean, you, you had Congress pass an act some years ago that sought to prevent U.S. corporations from bribing political leaders abroad. And everybody knows that that still happens. And then, of course, you have to ask the threshold question, why did they have to pass that law in the first place? <laughs> Obviously, because people, because corporations were bribing political leaders abroad and, and, and introducing corruption or perhaps exacerbating corruption, as the case might be. So sports is hardly devoid of that pestilence. Specifically with boxing, what can it tell us about Black America, white supremacy, and capitalism? Well, with regard to white supremacy, uh, a theme of this book is the decades-long search for the so-called great white hope. Uh, in a sense, uh, it's initiated or inaugurated circa 1910, approximately uh, 110 years ago, when Jack Johnson, a black heavyweight champion uh, with roots in Galveston, Texas, uh, knocks out the heavyweight champ in Reno, Nevada, uh, which upset the apple cart in terms of masculinity particularly in terms of black masculinity, because there was this persistent theme that uh, black men lack masculinity as defined in a capitalist society because real men don't allow, don't quote, allow themselves to be enslaved, unquote. Uh, real men don't uh, allow themselves, quote unquote, to be subjected to Jim Crow. And this put an enormous chip on the shoulder of many black American men who felt they had to work overtime to overturn these uh, stereotypes. And then that gives them extra jet fuel, uh, which they use to their advantage in the boxing ring. And this, of course, uh, is upsetting to the white supremacists. 
when Jack Johnson becomes heavyweight champion, they begin to persecute him. He leaves the country, forced into exile. And then there's a search for so-called great white hope. And interestingly enough, you, you you shouldn't necessarily take the term great white hope literally. They were just looking for someone other than a black person to defeat a black person. So, for example, they were looking for a great white hope in China. I mean, believe it or not. They just wanted to put the Negro in his place. And then, of course, that that, that, that ties into a, a, another aspect of the origins of capitalism, not only in this country, but particularly in this country, uh, which is that it has been shaped and, to a certain extent, uh, created by the African slave trade. Uh, in 1860, as you probably know, on the eve of the U.S. Civil War, the 4 million enslaved Africans were the most valuable investment in the United States of America, How more valuable than the factories, for example. But this was a troublesome property that oftentimes uh, collaborated with the real and imagined foes of the ruling elite in the United States, indigenous people, British invaders during the War of 1812, for example, when Washington, D.C. was torched in August 1814. Uh, the Redcoats were joined in that uh, in that escapade by black people, by enslaved Africans, who then escaped on British boats to Trinidad and Tobago, another British possession. And so this helped to generate a certain amount of uh, antagonism and animosity towards black people, which you still see as represented in the streets of Minneapolis and the killing of George Floyd amongst other uh, black people who have been slaughtered in the streets. And so it was very important uh, for the ruling elite and their acolytes to make sure that black people were kept in their place. And uh, that was not easy to do when you have people like Jack Johnson pummeling uh, these Euro-American men in the ring and then walking away with fat purses, that is to say, uh, with uh, purses stuffed with U.S. currency. And so I think it's fair to say that capitalism itself is, in the United States, grounded in white supremacy, and boxing in the United States historically had been grounded in white supremacy, which is one of the reasons why the search for a great white hope uh, did not cease once Jack Johnson was forced out of the ring. Um, I I bring the story up at least until the 1980s when the black American champion Larry Holmes was slated to box the latest iteration of the great white hope, speaking of gentleman Jerry Cooney of uh, Long Island. And Ronald Wilson Reagan, the U.S. president, was expecting, like many others, for Mr. Cooney to prevail. Of course, he did not. But in any case, they had set up uh, a telephone connection in Cooney's dressing room for him to speak to Reagan after he had reestablished white male masculinity uh, and its preeminence. Uh, But alas, that did not take place. So it sounds like black masculinity from what you just said um, even maybe some of the quote unquote toxic elements can't be understood without thinking of it as a reaction 
to white supremacy? Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> it, it's it's an this this toxic masculinity is just one more burden on the back of black people, or one more millstone around the neck of black American men. Uh, you could group it categorically with being forced to work for free and then being forced to work for less, being forced to work in dirty and dangerous jobs, being subjected to job discrimination, and toxic masculinity, as noted, uh, is something that uh, emerged from the very pores of capitalist society, having a disproportionate and negative impact upon Black American men, because certainly, uh, I think it's fair to say that toxic masculinity is not a unique liability of Black American men. It's something that exists within the society. Uh, But it's one more burden to bear for Black American men, because oftentimes it's manifested itself in terms of uh, having difficulty in establishing intimacy, for example, uh, which is oftentimes seen as uh, antithetical to establishing uh, lifelong bonds within an intimate partnership, uh, which can have negative social impact in terms of divorce, in terms of uh, division of families, for example. So, this 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 question of capitalism it's a hydra-headed monster and uh, it takes on many forms and it takes on particularly noxious forms when it comes to those who were initially enslaved and then subjected to an atrocious US apartheid your book starts with bojack but chronologically, the history of Black pugilism not only goes back to American slavery, but back further to the continent of Africa and the slave trade. Can you tell us about that? Uh, if you look at uh, Angola in Southwest Africa, uh, which was a happy hunting ground for slave traders for centuries, uh, certainly going back at least to the 1500s. And interestingly enough, you have developing in Angola this choreography come martial arts called capoeira, uh, which is oftentimes associated with Brazil. As a matter of fact, uh, you can question whether or not it develops on the shores of Angola or develops across the Atlantic uh, once the enslaved or or dragged, uh, kicking and screaming into Brazil which, as you know, had the uh, largest uh, population of enslaved Africans uh, in the Americas. And your listeners can go online, if they're not familiar with capoeira, and see how it is uh, performed or executed. And likewise, uh, across the continent, uh, the gigantic island of Madagascar Uh, off the coast of Mozambique in Southeast Africa, you also had forms of martial arts developing, uh, which developed, coincidentally enough, as the slave trade is developing. Because 
one of the advantages that the enslavers had was weapons. <laughs> you know, that was one of the reasons they were able to enslave people because you either march willingly onto the ship or you might get shot. And so in a creative adaptation, you see the Africans developing these ways of combating the enslavers uh, by dint of using their feet and hands. I mean, that's the essence of these martial arts that are developing. And then on top of that, uh, I should mention that Angolans are also prominent in terms of the slave trade to North America, uh, to what becomes the United States of America. In fact, one of the largest and bloodiest slave revolts in colonial North America takes place in South Carolina, circa 1739, uh, known as Stono's Revolt. And it's mostly Angolans. And, and as, as, as their won't, as compared to, for example, the enslaved collaborating with the British in 1814, uh, the enslaved Angolans in Carolina were collaborating with the Spanish in 1739, who then occupied St. Augustine, Florida. Spanish, uh, Florida, as you know, doesn't become part of the United States until about 200 years ago, circa 1820. And interestingly enough, one of the most significant uh, prisons in this country is called Angola State Prison in Louisiana. <laughs> uh, because, you know, it's interesting. I mean, they, they bring these Angolans over here in chains and then they're freed, quote unquote, and then they put them in prison. You, you can. There have been documentary films about uh, Angola State Prison. It, it's, it's quite notorious. And interestingly enough, if you were to do a DNA test, you'd find that many of the enslaved actually are Angolan. And so uh, this this question of um, black combativeness, if you like, uh, it's it's grounded in material reality. I mean, it's. You know, you, you have uh, these certain writers who, who talk about blacks excelling, excelling in certain sports. And they have these theories about their thighs. You might remember the CBS commentator, Jimmy Negri, uh, who, who, who was a commentator on U.S. football. I guess he was mesmerized by the notion of all these black men on the football field. So he, he developed these theories about their thighs and and all of that. And, and actually, it, it, it's, it's really just the material conditions <laughs> which, uh, in which, to which they were subjected, uh, which brings us to Bojack, who was on the first page of this book, and the Battle Royal, uh, which he was subjected to, but not him alone. Uh, he was a black American uh, lightweight boxer, that is to say about 135, 140 pounds. And uh, his roots were in, in Augusta, Georgia, a citadel of Jim Crow. And he had to fight in these so-called what was called the Battle Royal, where for the entertainment of the masters of Jim Crow, you, Bojack and seven, eight, nine other uh, young black men would be blindfolded and then all of them put in the ring. And whoever emerges triumphant would get a prize. 
And it turns out that Bo Jack, more often than not, oftentimes emerged triumphant. And so with that kind of training and that kind of material reality, a fighting one man, non-blindfolded in the ring, was a walk in the park. And so he becomes one of the biggest draws of Madison Square Garden in the 1940s uh, before, as so often happens to many boxers who are super exploited, he gets older and the injuries have accumulated. The pounding on his frame takes its toll and he has to retire from the ring, but he is also subjected to a crass exploitation by management, his management. And so he returns to Dixie, to the South, and winds up shining shoes, despite earning a king's ransom in the ring. And that's an all-too-typical story, I'm afraid to say, of black boxers. And just to give listeners some context, Bojack died in February 9 of 2000. So these battle royals that he was involved in wasn't that long ago. Not at all. And he, and as, as, as noted, he was not alone. And th- that, that's the story. I mean, uh, this book, of course, deals with the boldface names, you know, Joe Lewis, Sugar Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, Jack Johnson, Bo Jack, Henry Armstrong, Floyd Mayweather, who by some measures is the highest paid professional athlete right now. Of course, he's a boxer, and actually more or less in uh, Bojack's weight class. But it also spends a lot of time talking about those who are long gone, dead and buried, uh, those who lost their eyesight because of too many blows to the eyes, uh, those who develop brain damage because of too many blows to the head, Uh, those who spent more time than they should have uh, in the sport and therefore have difficulty walking. Uh, There are countless numbers of examples of boxers who fit those categories, not to mention those who were executed in the ring. And that allows me to merge two points, the points of masculinity and of damage in the ring. Uh, 1962, Madison Square Garden, uh, welterweight premier boxer Emil Griffith of the Virgin Islands is slated to touch gloves with Benny Parrett with the roots in Cuba. Uh, The latter had charged that the former was homosexual, which in 1962 uh, was considered to be an insult. And it turns out historically that that may have been the case with regard to Emil Griffith. But in any case, when they climbed into the ring, uh, Emil Griffith beat Benny Perrette mercilessly. And as the crowd chanted for blood, Emil Griffith delivered in spades. 
and Benny Perrette was systematically executed in the ring. He died in the ring, or he died after being carried out of the ring. And uh, this is just one example amongst many of boxers who have died in the ring. I mean, there are few sports where the logic of the sport leads to one of the contestants being carried out of the ring dead. But I'm afraid to say that that has been the case for boxers too numerous to mention. There's some things you said that really connects some dots for me because speaking of Angola and Madagascar, the martial arts scenes there are still very strong. And in speaking of Angola, if we were to think of the American prison systems as an extension of American slavery, there's a martial art that came out of the prison systems called jailhouse rock that seems like it was in a similar way, a way of training boxing or fighting where the guards wouldn't know that you're training in boxing and fighting. And a certain style that came out of that looks a lot like the Philly shell, which got incorporated into boxing. So it seems like it all kind of connects. Well, it's interesting. You know, if, if you look at Capoeira, uh, it's oftentimes described as ballet. <laughs> and it, it actually resembles ballet. Uh, oftentimes, it's it, there's a, a lot of cartwheels and whirling legs. And oftentimes it's executed to the beat of a drum. And in some ways, I mean, I've seen Capoeira on stage where it you could easily be led to believe that this is not a martial arts. This is just a form of ballet because it's very graceful and is oftentimes is performed or executed with two individuals and one individual has one leg barely missing impact at the head of the other individual and the other individual responds in kind as they seem to just be involved in doing various kinds of cartwheels and acrobatics so it's 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 a it's a very um a very intriguing form of martial arts. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Something I talk about a lot is white supremacy and colonialism within U.S. martial arts. And I would say a great example of that is how Western martial artists don't acknowledge Africa or African martial arts at all. This origin story that you gave us is something a lot of practitioners in the U.S. have never heard about. 
Well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> that's, that's that's quite unfortunate because, I mean, you would think, you know, you had all, you had all these black people in the United States. I mean, I'm sure people must realize that they did. Most of them did not come here voluntarily, uh, and most of them came here kicking and screaming, and most of them were subjected to the most heinous forms of exploitation, and inevitably. Uh, that leads to resistance, which and, and actually these people you're referring to, they may have an excuse because oftentimes in the historical profession, uh, there is a reluctance to talk about slave resistance. And which is unfortunate because if you don't understand slave resistance, then you can't understand what I've been talking about for the last 30 minutes in terms of this uh, black masculinity and how it's translated into sports, how it's translated into boxing and professional football in particular. And these historians, as a matter of fact, there's a leading historian, who I'll, I'll spare you his name, who is now celebrated. And there's a, a, a poignant vignette in the introduction to one of his books where a black student in one of his classes wants to talk about uh, slave resistance, and the professor says, "Well, I had to break it to him that it really wasn't that prevalent." And I, I have to say, when I read that, I felt like throwing the book out of the window, but I didn't, because you know, that's part of my job to read this sort of stuff. But that's quite typical, I'm afraid to say, and it obviously helps to throw dust in the eyes of the larger populace makes it difficult for them to understand martial arts, boxing, professional football. And also, on the flip side of the coin, uh, makes it difficult for them to understand why organs of the state are oftentimes so hostile to black people uh, because they see us as not only uh, lost investments because when slavery was abolished in 1865, it was one of the largest uncompensated expropriations of private property in history up to that point. When Britain abolished slavery in the Caribbean, Jamaica, Barbados, etc., they compensated the slave owners, with some of their descendants only being paid off totally as of 2015. Whereas, as a kind of vengeance <laughs> against these slave owners in Dixie, who after all were responsible by declaring civil war, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. And so as a kind of vengeance, uh, they did not get paid off, except in Washington, D.C. That was the rare exception. And so I have this hypothesis that the anti-Washington ethos that you see in contemporary conservatism in the United States, which of course is disproportionately cited in Dixie, particularly in Texas, from where I'm now speaking, which was a leading slave state, that this anti-Washington ethos is, is grounded in no small measure in the fact that it was Washington who took their property without compensation, uh, which then meant that black people are seen not only as destabilizing agents in society willing to ally with the real and imagined antagonists of the U.S. ruling elite, 
but also are seen as lost investments. People see lost fortunes when they see black people walking down the street, which then helps to uh, galvanize this antagonism and resentment and at times hatred, uh, which makes it difficult for you to, well, I mean, Trevor Noah, the comedian, uh, he had a segment a few days ago where he was talking about how black parents oftentimes will tell an eight-year-old daughter how to respond when confronting with the police. Because apparently these beefy police officers can be intimidated by an eight-year-old girl, (laughs) believe it or not. But if you look at the history, you'll understand uh, why it is that even eight-year-old girls are not immune from being manhandled by police officers. And why a traffic stop for a black person can rather quickly escalate into a death sentence, or even jaywalking can escalate into a death sentence. And part of the the tragedy of the United States is that this all seems to be inexplicable. You know, people are scratching their heads trying to figure out why this is taking place when it's utterly explicable. Something you've mentioned previously in other interviews was how fighting was a part of American slavery. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I mean, it's just like the the Battle Royal. The slave owners obviously were titillated by the idea of putting two black men in the ring and having them go at each other. And of course, I I draw a parallel because in the... um, Concentration camps in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, the commanders of the concentration camps oftentimes like to have the inmates uh, battle one another. And in fact, um, when I deal with the Jewish American boxing luminaries, like uh, Benny Leonard, for example, and Abe Attle, for example, Oftentimes in their oral histories, they talk about how they grew up in Irish-American and Italian-American neighborhoods. And so from the time they left their door to go to school, they had to use their fists to keep from being pummeled, which helps to explain uh, how and why it was that you had so many uh, sub-heavyweight Jewish-American boxing champions in the 1920s and 1930s. Now, of course, what happens is that post-1945, you have the rise of a powerful anti-Jim Crow, anti-white supremacist movement. It's fueled by many different forces. Uh, Number one, there's a revulsion towards the Holocaust uh, in Central Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. There were those who came to see when the doors of Auschwitz were flung open and that and the crematories were exposed, that this was the ultimate logic of white supremacy and racism. And then, of course, you have uh, black people, as has been our tendency, uh, beating back the walls of Jim Crow and U.S. apartheid. You have the United States uh, trying to establish itself as a paragon of human rights virtue 
and the battle of ideas with the socialist camp? And how could it do so when people of color, particularly the black people, were treated so atrociously? Up to and including lynching, that is to say being executed without due process of law uh, by mobs. And of course, there are postcards all over the place with uh, these white mobs surrounding a lynch victim who oftentimes is burned at the stake after being hung, oftentimes castrated too, for that matter. And because the United States is in this difficult position globally, as nations in Africa, Latin America, and Asia are surging towards independence, it creates a dynamic where not only Jim Crow has to retreat, but also anti-Semitism has to retreat. And so therefore, you begin to see uh, an escalation of more Jewish men becoming not only managers, which had been the tendency be- even before 1945, but also promoters, uh, up to and including uh, Bob Arrow, who's still in the land of the living, even though he's in his late 80s in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada. And of course, uh, the doors are open to a certain extent, even for black promoters, uh, such as the notorious Don King the man with the electrified bouffant hairdo, who also is still in the land of the living, uh, headquartered in Cleveland and New York. So uh, this is part of the political economy of this combative sport. So all of this then becomes the what you have called the material conditions for Black excellence in sports, but not only Black excellence, but also other oppressed minority groups who had to use sports as an escape, or maybe it was like the only space they were allowed to do anything. And in particular, boxing, then different groups over time have used boxing then as a way to find a place where they could excel. And then, you know, if uh, society opens up, then they can leave and they no longer have to box. But this is a better explanation, the material conditions explanation over the genetic explanation. Well, I would hope so. (laughs) I would think so. And uh, as your comment suggested, it's not only uh, black Americans and Jewish Americans. I mean, look at Manny Pacquiao Mm -hmm. of the Philippines, for example, who's boxed Floyd Merriweather and also is a sub heavyweight. Obviously, uh, he's made a small fortune in the ring and then has parlayed that into being a, a sort of political leader in his native Philippines. Or look at all the the great uh, Puerto Rican and Mexican boxers uh, over the years. Uh, For some reason, Hector Camacho is stuck in my head right now. (laughs) But uh, Wilfredo Benitez, I mean, there there, there are just so many. And um, there's been a a kind of ethnic succession. And now uh, you're beginning to see, particularly in in recent decade or so, more boxers from the Ukraine for example. So um, the beat goes on, literally and figuratively. Now, you mentioned Jack Johnson earlier. Was Jack Johnson a socialist? Well, he ran a socialist newspaper in his favorite city, which was Barcelona in España, in Spain. And in some ways, uh, even though perhaps understandably Muhammad Ali gets more publicity in terms of being a politically engaged boxer. After all, uh, he was catapulted into prominence when he refused to step forward to be conscripted and drafted into the U.S. military to fight in the war in Indochina. 
in the uh, mid-1960s, mid to late 1960s. And then after he was stripped of the ability to box, he became a kind of performer. Uh, although uh, you can go online and, and find him acting in the movie Freedom Road, where he plays an enslaved African who rises to the U.S. Senate. Uh, I'm happy to say that Muhammad Ali stuck with boxing. His <laughs> acting was not his forte. But that's my own editorial judgment. But in some ways, Jack Johnson ideologically was more advanced. Now, it's difficult to compare these boxes over different eras because when Muhammad Ali was being catapulted into prominence, uh, Jim Crow was being strangled. I'm talking about the mid to late 1960s, going through the 1970s, and he boxes up until the early 1980s. Whereas Jack Johnson boxed during the apex of Jim Crow. And when he is being persecuted after the victory in Reno, Nevada in 1910, uh, he, he flees to revolutionary Mexico and tries to establish a beachhead uh, against Jim Crow and white supremacy in Mexico. And then after he has to face the music when there's regime change in Mexico City, uh, he comes back and is jailed, and then he goes abroad. And as I said, he sets up a newspaper in Barcelona. And um, it's quite a phenomenal figure. And of course, you know that there is a movie uh, about him uh, uh, with J uh, James Earl Jones, the preeminent black actor playing him in The Great White Hope. Although, as the title of that film suggests, which was also a stage play, it only deals with a limited chapter in his life. It doesn't deal with some of his more radical political stances. And likewise, with regard to Ali, you know that Will Smith played him uh, with regard to, with a focus uh, on some aspects of his political career. And then, of course, in between, there's the Brown Bomber. Uh, Joe Lewis, the heavyweight boxing champion in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, who also was political. It's, uh, it's, often, it's, uh, it's oftentimes forgotten because he ended up in such a difficult position, like so many boxers, as sort of a greeter at a Las Vegas casino, which is like being a greeter at Walmart nowadays. And people have forgotten that he was, he was aligned with the organized left in the 1940s. That's one of the reasons, it seems to me, why he was hounded so relentlessly by the Internal Revenue Service, uh, which figuratively held him up by his ankles and shook him until every coin fell out of his pocket, which then reduced him to a certain kind of poverty that led to his being this greeter at a Las Vegas casino. So people oftentimes talk about the quarterback, Colin Kaepernick, who protested against uh, police terror in black communities and lost his job as a quarterback as a result. But there is a long history and legacy of these uh, black athletes who were outspoken and who have been outspoken. And Colin Kaepernick, to a degree, is just sitting on their shoulders. Joe Lewis was also friends with Paul Robeson. Oh, absolutely. That's what I'm referring to. And Paul Robeson, for those who may not be familiar, 
was the tallest tree in our forest, the stellar student at Rutgers University, all-American football player, track star, baseball catcher, Columbia University Law School graduate, star of stage and screen, perhaps the biggest star, black star in Hollywood in the 1930s, also uh, lived in exile in London in the 1920s and 1930s, but he was, of course, a socialist, uh, an anti-imperialist. And after the political climate changed, because reference my post-1945 analysis, which not only witnesses the attack on colonialism and white supremacy, but also involves the Red Scare and the routing of socialists, and the routing of anti-imperialists and anti-capitalists. Foremost amongst them was the great Paul Robeson, who Joe Lewis was fond of. And as noted, you can't explain what happens to Joe Lewis without understanding the overriding political atmosphere, uh, which was conflicting with his progressive political stances. And Robeson, isn't he also a musician? Oh, sure. He was a singer. And, of course, uh, your listeners can go online and listen to Robeson singing the song King Joe, which is his ode to Joe Lewis with the Count Basie Orchestra, uh, three all-stars, the pianist and band leader Count Basie, the singer Robeson singing about Joe Lewis. And th- that, that kind of analysis, uh, that kind of uh, lineup where... Count Basie was not afraid to perform alongside Paul Robeson, but soon he would be, because if he did perform alongside Paul Robeson, he would find himself in in bad a condition as Paul Robeson, who, after all, uh, was subjected to murder attempts, whose passport was taken, uh, forbidding him to leave the country, uh, whose records were snatched out of record stores whose income fell precipitously from the healthy six figures to the low four figures, who was dragged more than once before congressional committees, including the House and American Activities Committee, uh, whose closest comrades uh, were jailed, some of whom were driven into premature death. And you could actually say the same about Paul Robeson, because after an international campaign, he received his passport, but he kind of overdid it in terms of travel, and it caused a deterioration of his health. And so when he, he was born in 1898, passes away in January 1976, but before 1976, uh, his health had been in steady decline. I think another example of the overlap between white supremacy and anti-communism was the looking for white champions, the great white hope, or I guess it's not necessarily literal, non-black champions, uh, looking for them everywhere, as you mentioned, including China, but also in the Joe Lewis era, even looking at Nazi Germany over Russia, because as racist as they were, they didn't want a communist champion. Well, it's interesting. Um, I guess you're referring to Max Schmeling, Mm -hmm. the uh, German who had a non-too-shrouded relationship with the fascist regime in Berlin. And he had a number of bouts with Joe Lewis. And as you probably know, I mean, there was a, a significant pro-fascist movement in the United States of America, not only as embodied in Charles Lindbergh, uh, the man who 
achieved fame and notoriety with his flight in 1927 from New York to Paris in an airplane. Uh, But Father Coughlin, who was a kind of precursor of Rush Limbaugh or Alex Jones of Infowars, the German-American Bund, uh, these were very significant political forces. And so uh, it was not surprising uh, when there were many uh, in this country who were rooting against their so-called compatriot, (laughs) Joe Lewis, when he climbed into the ring with uh, the man from fascism, speaking of Max Schmeling. And and in a very curious episode, uh, this is nothing uh, unusual uh, because I assume this is not apocryphal, but apparently at certain bullfights that have taken place south of the border uh, involving uh, black matadors, that the Euro-Americans in the stands root for the bull, <laughs> not for the matador. <laughs> and, uh, and then, of course, you, you, you saw this during the Olympics as well. Or actually, you, you see it with the Williams sisters, Serena and Venus. Remember, they refused to perform in Indian Wells, California. Uh, because they felt that the fans were too hostile. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of anti-Moscow sentiment in this country, even after the collapse of the Soviet Union. But uh, Maria Sharapova, the blonde from Russia, uh, oftentimes the Euro-Americans would root for her over uh, Serena or Venus, forgetting momentarily their anti-Moscow animus. So this is the cross that we bear, uh, speaking of black Americans. Uh, That is to say, being dragged uh, involuntarily across the Atlantic to be not only enslaved workers, but also being a kind of antipode uh, for the construction of this uh, so-called white identity politics, where you had these people who were warring on the shores of Europe English versus Irish versus Scots, British versus German, German versus Russian, Russian versus Pole, Serb versus Croat, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, ad infinitum. But all of a sudden, when they cross the Atlantic, they become, quote, white, unquote. Mm. And then the glue that helps to bond that militarized and monetized identity is helping to keep not only the enslaved Africans in line, but also sharing the bounty uh, that had been stolen from the Native Americans in terms of an entire continent. (laughs) And uh, that's a very difficult history for some to absorb, even to this very day. Going back to Jack Johnson, I know the KKK to the CIA have used the fear of Black men sexually assaulting white women to damage and discredit Black movements and Black people. And Jack Johnson being a person who because of the Mann Act, or which was called the Anti-White Slavery Act, he got caught up in this. And that is part of why, as you mentioned, he had to leave the U.S. Just as prominent Black musicians, artists, and writers were also leaving the racism of the U.S. So what is this white supremacist fear all about, about Black men assaulting white women? Well, it's multifaceted. Um, Number one, For the Euro-American men, it it tends to give them a monopoly on what they consider to be a resource, which is access to women, because obviously there was no such bar to these Euro-American men consorting with Black American women or any other women, for that matter. That's why 
Black Americans come in so many different colors, <laughs> by the way, because of systematic rape and plunder over the centuries by Euro-American men. But also, as, as a, you know, I wrote a book on the 16th century, and w- one of the points that I made is that one of the differences between Spanish colonialism in the Americas and English colonialism was that Spanish colonialism uh, post-1492 uses religion as a qualifier. Uh, that is to say, e- even when Stephen F. Austin uh, works out a deal in Mexico City to settle in Tejas, Texas, about 200 years ago, he had to profess Catholicism. You, that, that was the qualifier. And that's one of the reasons why in Cuba, which was also a, a Spanish uh, colony, that you could have uh, black conquistadors if they profess Catholicism. Whereas England had been an early convert, if you like, to Protestantism, inaugurated by Martin Luther in Germany, what is now Germany, circa 1517. And this inaugurated an entire era of religious wars, Protestant versus Catholic. And England, as a scrappy underdog, uh, and uh, with a fifteen, with with the Catholics having a fifteen hundred year advantage in terms of recruiting, could not afford to be choosy in, in terms of choosing allies. So even though uh, England had expelled the Jewish population in say twelve ninety twelve ninety one, they welcomed. Uh, Jewish people fleeing the Iberian Peninsula into their ranks because they couldn't afford to be choosy. Now, of course, the historians, with their typical sleight of hand, have interpreted that as being uh, the seeds of progressivism <laughs> because, uh, because of that maneuver. And so I, th- I think what happens is that this premium on whiteness uh, and the premiums on pan-Europeanism becomes an essential element of colonialism London style. And you can't have whiteness, at least not officially, if you don't maintain the strict color line. And certainly you can't have whiteness and you can't have subjugation of black people in particular, black men in particular, if black men have sexual access to European women. And so it, it all tends to fit together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. This actually connects to another question I had, which was in regards to settler colonialism as it pertains to Muhammad Ali proclaiming himself a Muslim, which was, uh, as something you've mentioned, the film One Night in Miami depicts the night before. Can you talk to us about that, that intersection of settler colonialism, what was happening in Europe, religion? Well... <laughs> when Muhammad Ali fights George Foreman in particular in the rumble in the jungle in the 1970s in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the subtext was Muslim versus Christian mm. because Foreman was a proud Christian. As a matter of fact, now he has a flock right here in Houston, Texas. And that was resonating Because, as noted, these religious wars helped to shape colonialism. Um, That is to say, the wars between English Protestants 
and Spanish Catholics. And in fact, for the longest, an essential element of English identity was anti-Catholicism. And when the settlers broke away from London, 1776, and their vaunted constitution, part of the First Amendment, was religious freedom, so-called. And once again, I don't think it's been interpreted the way it should be. Uh, This was not only a way to uh, garner and recruit more Europeans to keep the Africans in line and help to bludgeon the Native Americans into submission, but it's calling a truce in the religious wars in the interests of pan-Europeanism and whiteness and whiteness supremacy, basically. And so, all as I said, all, all of this sort of ties together, and I explained it in more detail uh, in the trilogy that I wrote, a book on the 16th century, a book on the 17th century, and then a book on 1776 and its discontents. With Jack Johnson, in his era, he wasn't just disliked because he was a black boxer beating up white boxers, but it was also because of his style. But he's one of the boxers that you talk about who helped to really define boxing as a sweet science. So can you talk about the technical aspect that Jack Johnson brought into boxing, what he changed? What was oftentimes said about Jack Johnson, that he made his opponent a comrade in terms of his opponent being defeated. In other words, Jack Johnson, the way he boxed and his defensive style in particular, and the way he could tie up boxers, he, t- he, he was converting his opponents into a victim or of their own demise, so to speak. And in the book, I, I use Joe Gans, G-A-N-S. Uh, your listeners may want to look him up, or they can look him up in my book. As one of the first of the so-called scientific boxers, uh, he gave tips as to how you should hold your feet and what angles you should hold your feet, and uh, how you should um, hold your hands or your fists and your gloves. And of course, there are different styles. Like if you look at Mike Tyson's style, the heavyweight champion in the 1990s, he had a a kind of peekaboo style where his hands were held high, and this was also the style of Floyd Patterson, who was the heavyweight champion in the 1950s. Both had been trained by Cus D'Amato. And if you look at Ali's style, uh, Ali oftentimes held his hands low. He depended upon his quickness. Uh, Jose Torres, who was a who was also trained, if I'm not mistaken, by Cus D'Amato as well and was a light heavyweight champion, then who became a writer, uh, he talked about how Muhammad Ali was able to have reflexes such that when a fist was coming towards his head, he could lean back and the fist would miss his head, for example. And then his feet, he was so quick and fast in the ring that he could stand on his toes, at least when he was in shape, and dance figuratively uh, for 15 rounds. 
and was able. And then, of course, there's the, the classic fight uh, in uh, Zaire, now Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, with the technique that's launched a thousand metaphors. I'm speaking of the rope dope, mm-hmm. <laughs> where uh, Ali apparently his 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 side men uh, were able to loosen the ropes and make them more elastic. <laughs> And he would lean up against the ropes and George Foreman would then pound him, or at least George Foreman thought he was pounding him. Ali was covering up, but it was the, the fight be- in order to be broadcast uh, back in the United States was in the wee hours of the morning. And it was hot. We're talking about Africa, talking about the Congo. And George Foreman was exerting himself tremendously throwing all these blows while Muhammad Ali was sort of resting against the ropes. <laughs> and then finally, uh, Ali spins off the ropes and dispenses with George Foreman. So, I mean, the, the, this question of, you know, as you know, A.J. A. Liebling, the writer for The New Yorker, called boxing the sweet science. But I, I call it the bittersweet science because it not only involves the sweetness uh, of defensive boxers uh, who turn their opponent into an accessory of their own demise. It, it's almost as if a fighter like Jack Johnson really doesn't have to do that much except to deliver the final blow to see his uh, opponent on the canvas uh, looking up at the sky. And there's a certain sweetness, there's a certain scientific rigor to that. But of course, as we've been talking about for the last hour, there is a putrid bitterness, too, in terms of white supremacy, racism, exploitation, murder, brain damage, blindness, etc. Yeah, it does seem like there is both an exploitive aspect to it to black boxers, but then these black boxers in a lot of ways help to fight American apartheid and white supremacy because boxing was probably the only legal place for a black man to beat up a white man. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that was commented on more than once, how you could get paid handsomely for pounding some Euro-American man into submission in the boxing ring. But if you tried to do that outside of a boxing ring, <laughs> you could get lit. <laughs> and uh, that was a contradiction that was difficult for society to grapple with. And talking about the exploitive aspect and going back to Joe Lewis, a common racist practice in boxing that lasted for a long time was for black boxers to give parts of their future purses to white opponents just to get a match with them. The same thing occurred to Joe Lewis with James J. Braddock, which you don't hear about in the film Cinderella Man, nor do you hear anything about the racism of the period in that film. So can you tell us what happened to Joe Lewis? Well, you, you've explained the, the, the kernel of his dilemma, how he had to pledge X percentage of his purses to these various vultures, including the management of, of Jim Braddock. And then, of course, there, there's a story that takes up space in my book about how when he's coming to the point where he wants to retire, late 1940s, early 1950s. And like many black Americans before or since, he decides that perhaps he should move into the business end of the sport. 
This is taking place as televisions are becoming a household appliance. And boxing is on television as an early form of programming uh, in the 1950s. So that uh, Gillette could sell razor, razor blades and Budweiser and Schaefer could sell beer. And so what happens is that he, he recruits Truman Gibson, who is a, a young black lawyer, to be his partner. But they have to make an alliance with organized crime because organized crime is controlling a, a number of the boxers. And so in order to get boxers, you have to cut deals with the mob. But what happens is predictable, which is that Joe Lewis and his partner, Truman Gibson, do not have necessary influence in the district attorney's office or the federal prosecutor's office. And so Truman Gibson is indicted uh, along, by the way, along with a number of mafia types. And uh, he's not jailed, but he does leave the sport that wrecks Joe Lewis's business. And as I said, he, he ends up as a greeter in Las Vegas casino, but also the aftermath is predictable when other mafia figures then move in <laughs> after there's a big to do made about cleaning up the sport with the ouster of Truman Gibson from the apex of the sport. That's all the questions I have for you, Professor Horn. This was a real treat and honor. Can you give us the name of your book again and perhaps some of your other books that might be good companions to read after this one? Yeah, the name of the book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Uh, can be read profitably alongside Jazz and Justice, uh, Racism and the Political Economy of the Music, uh, which can be read profitably alongside a class struggle in Hollywood, uh, which can be read profitably alongside <laughs> my trilogy on the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pauls, hitting with the left. South Pauls. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.